Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. How can we be helpful to others? When we see others going through difficult times, and when we see others less fortunate than we are, how are we to help them? Is it by prayer? Is it by giving them their physical needs? Helping them to recognize that God can care for their spiritual needs? What is it that we can do to help? Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 16. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, and let him glorify God in that name. So this morning's statement is this. Emerging from the myriad of problems and hardships in this life, will we have an increased faith for what is possible as a Christian. Will we understand the overriding plan of God and his purpose that he has for all of us that are committed to him in sincerity? Do we believe what we believe? Do we trust what we trust? Do we understand what we understand? Now, it is a simple fact that no one is immune from pain and suffering in this life. Whether we are rich or poor, educated or unlearned, popular or almost unnoticed, there will be a certain amount of pain that we must deal with as we live out this life for Christ while we're on this earth. Not all Christians suffer to the same degree as others do, but all experience pain and hardship to some extent. It is also true that both Christians and unbelievers will experience hardship of some sort. A Wise man once observed that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. I believe that sentiment is very true. Warren Worsby has noted that our attitude directly determines our altitude. We should remember that the 
entire epistle of First Peter was written simply to the early first century Christians who were beginning to endure great trials because of their faith. And indeed, the whole book, the whole book deals either directly or indirectly with that single theme. The apostle has already mentioned suffering near the opening of this letter. If you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And why is that? So that our faith will be tested. So that our faith will be tested. More precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So up to this point, Peter has had many things to say about responding to suffering. Especially that which is brought on about through the hostilities and resentments of others around us. In the middle of chapter 4, Peter begins to give a list of ways that believers in Christ can respond to such hostilities. Since Christians are presently living near the consummation of human history, evidenced by the uh, eminence of the Lord's return, he exhorted his readers to be alert and watch as they pray. He also encouraged them to love each other to the very limit. In other words, the literal meaning of the Greek word translated as fervent. And that's because such love has a redemptive value. This love was also to be extended in the church through acts of hospitality towards each other without complaining. And next, Peter instructed his suffering readers to continue in their spiritual growth through the proper exercise and regulation of their spiritual gifts. We talked about this last week. We've all been gifted by God to fulfill a purpose. Some of us in here may not know or even recognize what that spiritual gift is, but God has given it to you nonetheless. Whether we're using it properly, that's between, that's between you and your relationship to God, and he has revealed that to you. Obeying all of these injunctions would help these early Christians keep their trials and pain in a proper heavenly perspective. These commands are also brought to bear upon us today as we are called to suffer in the name of our Lord. So, in light of this information, which we've all been privy to, and we all know what the scripture says, how do we deal with suffering? How do we survive our suffering? See, Peter is challenging us to keep three important facts in mind as they pertain to sanctified suffering. First of all, he was reminding us that suffering is guaranteed by God. It is a guarantee. 
It's important for us to understand that Peter is not referring here to the ordinary trials and inconveniences that we are all too familiar with. All of us here experience these every day in many different ways. Many sincere Christians face a host of problems that are the natural result of living in this world. Facing unexpected expenses, such as maybe the car breaks down, the stress of meeting important deadlines, coping with sicknesses and even surgery, getting stuck in traffic, having an argument with the spouse, or not being able to find the remote control for the television. These are all ordinary trials, right? Some of them seem more insignificant than others, but they are trials nonetheless. Peter is talking about fiery trials here. He's talking about fiery trials. These are extremely intense, prolonged, and may even threaten our very life. Understanding some of the historical and cultural background behind Peter's expressions here may be helpful to us at this point. In the Apostles' Day, the Christian faith had been tolerated to some extent by the Roman Empire, but this was rapidly giving way to outright hostility. The Christians then were considered to be adherents to an aberrant variation of Judaism, and they were beginning to experience severe persecution from the Roman government. The infamous ruler Nero would soon begin to level great hostilities against the followers of Jesus Christ, primarily for political reasons. Rome had recently experienced the ravages of a great fire that destroyed a significant portion of the city, and there was threats of contamination of both religious and social life. And in an effort to bolster his popularity and appease the anger of the people, Nero conveniently pinned the blame for the disaster on the Christians living in and around the Roman Empire. Thousands of Christians were brutally tortured, murdered, and burned at the stake as a result. And as a result of that, Peter's reference to fire in this verse would have been particularly poignant because there would have been great understanding of what that really meant. Because they were being put to fire. And fire is an important symbol in Scripture, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. It consumed the sacrifices that were presented to God in Leviticus and 1 Kings and spoke of his nearness to people. It reminds us of the holiness and awesome purity of God as well. God judged the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by raining fire upon them. God led the wandering Hebrews by a manifestation of divine fire at night, which we talked about with the kids just a moment ago. God led the wandering Hebrews by a manifestation of divine fire at night. How would that even look to us today? Quickly, we'd be like, oh, 
Uh, we're going to blame, uh, I don't know, let's, let's throw a name out there that get, they get blamed on. Let's blame PG&E on it. Right? Let's blame someone else other than what it really is. Fire also consumes almost anything and is quite destructive. And in short, it is a tremendous source of power. In this verse, Peter urges his hearers to not be surprised when intense trials and sufferings come their way. The Greek word translated strange in this passage literally means shocked or to be astonished. Many Christians today do seem to be taken back when difficult circumstances and situations prevail. Many Christian groups are advocating a pain-free life if enough, pla- if enough faith is placed in God. This theology is way out in left field, and it is not supported by the clear statements of Scripture. Peter's declaration here is a direct contradiction to that mindset. As I was preparing this message this week, actually it was previous week, I thought about all the times that I've gone through fiery trials and even gone through fiery trials in this week. And I thought, oh, how rewarding it is that God can speak to me through my own word. Well, his word, right? How many times does God speak to you through a situation and you just think, God, I know you want me to learn something here, but I'm stubborn And I don't know if that's what I really want in my life right now. But you see, God is preaching about the fiery trials of life. Because he's warning us. He's giving us a warning of what's to come. But we can also avoid those trials by putting our faith in God. Not completely. But God is providing a way for us to warn others as well. Peter here is talking about how it is abnormal to not experience trials and tests of our faith. Having a painless life is both impossible and undesirable. Many people try in vain to escape their suffering and pain through Avenues of things that clearly mess up their life even further. Others deny that pain and suffering even exists, like they can just will it away. Still, others try to place the blame for their misfortune upon others. Facing our situation with the help of God is the only realistic and acceptable response to that suffering and pain. Just knowing that trials will come to us during the course of life prevents us from falling apart with unnecessary worry and despair. Our Lord reminds us that we will be persecuted because he was as well. John chapter 15 verse 20. Indeed, if we live godly lives, we can expect it to come eventually. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Seneca once remarked that fire 
tries gold, and misery tries brave men. I believe that statement is only partially true. If truth be known, all of God's children will be tried and tested in some way. Peter says that we should not be surprised when that suffering comes, since it is guaranteed by God. He also tells us that suffering is also graced by glory. Graced by glory. Verses 13 and 14. Suffering for Jesus Christ makes pain profitable for us in many different ways. In verse 13, Peter declares that suffering is blessed with the glory of God only to the extent that we suffer for him. And as he gave his own personal testimony to the transforming power of God, the Apostle Paul said he wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering. Paul had clearly learned the lesson that Peter had for us today. Too many Christians seem to base their responses to pain and suffering solely upon emotions and feelings. During the midst of intense pain, not many people feel like rejoicing. But that's exactly what Paul learned. That we can rejoice in our suffering. That we can rejoice in our pain because we know that when we do, we are suffering just like Christ did. And that's what he called us to do. James gives us some insight into this aspect of suffering when he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. James 1 verse 2. The Greek word rendered count in this verse means to consider or to reckon. It has to do with making a mental evaluation and not a, an emotional response. We cannot take this by emotion. The early church faced fierce persecution when they responded with rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Our suffering is graced by God's glory for many important reasons. First of all, it is because he goes with us through our pain. We don't do it alone. We should remember that God never sends us anywhere because he goes with us through every event in life. He was the three Hebrew children as they endured a literal fiery furnace. He was present with Paul as he faced the hostility of the unsympathetic rulers. Secondly, suffering for Jesus Christ is also grace because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. The glory of God is also where his presence is. And since God is especially near us as we suffer for him, his glory is there as well. Going through severe pain is hard. It is. It's hard. Going through it all alone is even harder. 
Knowing God is there with us gives us peace. It gives us joy. And the strength we will need to endure whatever may come. When Stephen was falsely accused and was taken before the council, just before he was to be stoned, the people saw the glory of God resting upon him. And as they saw his face, it was likened unto that of an angel. Polycarp was able to face a martyr's death at the age of 86 because of God's glory. When the aged man was given one last chance to renounce his faith, he replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blasphemy him now? How can I not call him my king and my savior? The glory of God rested upon him and helped him through his fiery trial. Some scholars believe this is also a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. This is the glory that dwelt in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Thirdly, suffering for Jesus Christ is also graced by glory because God expands our ministry through it. Spiritual maturity and usefulness are enhanced through the unlikely agents of suffering and pain. Looking back at my own life, I'm convinced that my spiritual growth was accelerated through the enduring of pain and the hardship that was caused for the cause of Christ. Sure, I can look at it now and say that, but going through it, do you think I said that then? No. But I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson. There was relatively little growth in my own spiritual life when things were going well for me. And you might say the same for yourself. It's hard to recognize growth when things are well. You don't think to call upon God when things are well, do we? It is a fact that pain prepares us for greater service to God. Anyone who has experienced the death of a parent, for example, can easily sympathize with and minister to those who have felt the same pain and loss. And we can talk about all the various trials that every single one of us in this room have gone through and how it maybe broke you at the time. But at the time, you didn't realize that God was refining you in a way which was going to benefit to others. And I can talk about many of them in my life, and I have before. But I can see now that God refines us in a way so that we can help others. So we must suffer for Christ's sake. Recall a story of a small eight-year-old boy who lost part of his right arm in a tragic accident near his home. And as he recuperated from his surgery, he became increasingly withdrawn and depressed. And the boy's father tried to encourage his son on many occasions, but he was unsuccessful. One day as the boy was lying on his bed in his room, his father announced, son, the new pastor of our church is here and he would like to meet you. 
The boy showed no interest, even after the pastor walked into the room. The boy's interest was immediately aroused when he looked up and saw that the pastor had lost his right arm in an accident as well. The kind pastor said, Son, I know exactly how you are feeling right now. We need to remember that our ministry to others is enhanced through suffering and hardship. And this is one reason why Peter said earlier that suffering was more precious than that of gold that perishes. And fourthly, suffering because of our testimony for Jesus Christ leads to God's glory because it causes us to trust in him even more. We never really know just how strong our faith is until it is tested. Dr. Adrian Rogers has said that a faith not worth testing is a faith that is not worth trusting. As our faith is increased, we are more likely to hear the Lord speaking to us through painful circumstances. C.S. Lewis once remarked that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf word. And certainly God is calling us to simply trust him more and not to worry or be anxious about the future. But as we go through unpleasant situations in this kingdom life we are experiencing, our faith deepens even more because we can remember how God brought us through past pains. And as we commit ourselves to the guarding of our souls to him, we are expressing our explicit trust in his loving care, understanding that God is there to pick up the pieces. We're not always notoriously known to be good at doing that. We've all been through many hurts. Some of us are currently experiencing them as we speak. But God is always there. God is there waiting to pick you up and to guide you where he needs you to be put. And then a fifth reason why suffering results in glory is that we are caused to see sin for what it really is. As God allows us to suffer and be tested through a variety of painful circumstances, he does so in order to purge his church of sin. And this is what Peter meant when he said that judgment must begin at the house of God. This will be later in verse 17. So to reinforce this truth, Peter also poses a question to us to consider. If God so allows his beloved church to undergo painful tests of faith, how shall those people suffer who have not placed their faith in Christ? This tremendous insight would enable Peter's hearers to appreciate the grace of God even more, especially when they are being allowed to suffer. A sixth reason for suffering is because it causes us to yearn and long for our heavenly home. That is the purpose of this sermon series. It's navigating home, understanding what God has laid out for us 
the plans in which he has placed before us in order to get there. We have work to do. Experiencing severe pain helps us to remember that life is very short and that there is a better life awaiting us in the future. The fragile ties we have to this present life are made even more fragile as we experience those trials and tests. And according to scripture, we are already seated with him in heavenly places in a spiritual sense right now. But one day, we will be with him physically, never to be separated from him ever again. And finally, our suffering is an opportunity to experience God's glory because it follows the pattern set forth for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. His attitude in suffering is one we should all do well to imitate as closely as possible. In glowing terms, Peter described Christ's attitude as he faced death on the cross for our sins. In chapter 2, he says, For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you should take it patiently? But when we do well, we suffer for it. You take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto we were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. For those who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on that tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed, for you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So not only is suffering an unavoidable reality for us as Christians, it is also graced by the glory of God as we suffer for our Lord's sake. And these truths should be inspiring to our hearts. But Peter mentions one last thing that we should know about surviving our suffering. And it should be guided by our godliness. Because suffering is guided by godliness. Peter has assured us that suffering is guaranteed by God and graced by his glory. In the last two verses of our text this morning, he now tells us that the suffering is also guided by godliness. Simply stated, we can suffer for both right and wrong reasons. Since suffering is assured, we should make sure we are experiencing it for the right reasons. It is a sad but simple fact that some types of suffering do not incur the blessings and grace of God. Some kinds of suffering are self-inflicted, while other kinds are forced upon us by others. And many Christians suffer because they have made wrong choices in life. They may be unhappy or uncomfortable right now because God allows them to have the natural result of their unwise choices. 
Others may suffer because they are reaping what has been sown in the past. Still others may be experiencing pain because they are enduring the chastening and correction of God because of unconfessed sin. None of these kinds of suffering qualifies as acceptable suffering. However, as he clarifies his point, Peter gives his own list of offenses to avoid. But it also should be noted that this is by no means an all-inclusive list. In strong language, Peter cautions his hearers not to suffer in ways that invoke the anger of God. Murderers and thieves suffer severe penalties because they have violated the law. They are punished by the government in ways that are consistent with the severity of their offenses. Peter's point is that these people suffer justly because they deserve the punishment they receive. Christians should not suffer justly. They should suffer unjustly. Because that's what we deserve. Peter had pointed out this truth previously for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 and 20. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endured grief, suffering wrongly, emphasis mine. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, and this is acceptable with God. We should suffer unjustly. But that's the beauty of the gift from God, which was his son, Jesus Christ. He buffeted that for us. He took care of that suffering for us. Peter also admonishes his readers not to suffer as a busybody in other men's affairs. Verse 15, the compound Greek word used here refers to someone who interferes or meddles in things that are of no concern to him. And such activity is disruptive and counterproductive and can easily provoke the anger of other people. John MacArthur has commented that this could possibly be a reference to Christians who fanatically pursue social causes an attempt to bring about justice. For example, we are all too familiar with those who call themselves Christians and who bomb abortion clinics. Others draw unhealthy attention to themselves as they seek to correct the evils of society and bring about justice through the use of loud words or even force. Such activity has the adverse effect of bringing reproach upon our Lord rather than justice or equity. Peter's point here is that no Christian should ever suffer because he or she failed to exhibit the compassion and love of Jesus Christ to others. In the last verse of our text, Peter summarizes his argument for suffering in a godly manner. Those who suffer because they are sincerely following Christ are called upon to rejoice and not be ashamed. Peter uses an interesting Greek word, and even though I've gone through Greek, I still cannot pronounce it. 
Just know it's very long. But this word is interesting because in order to encourage his readers to boldly face whatever kind of hostilities that come as a result of their testimony for Jesus Christ. The word rendered ashamed refers to a feeling or attitude that would prevent a person from doing a certain thing. Perhaps Peter remembered the time he was ashamed of our Lord and was afraid to be identified with him. He had learned this lesson the hard way. But we don't have to if we heed this word and take it into our hearts because God's glory rests upon us. We can boldly affirm our Lord with a rejoicing heart even in the midst of pain and suffering. And so to close this morning, we must know this. The Apostle Peter has reminded us of three vitally important truths about suffering for Jesus Christ. First, we know that it is guaranteed. We know that it is graced for glory. And we also know that it should be guided by godliness. The world we live in sees suffering as something to be avoided at all costs. As Christians, we have a totally different perspective, or we should have a totally different perspective. For us, suffering is precious because it produces godly character. It gives us an awareness of the nearness of God. We can rejoice inwardly even though we may suffer outwardly because we have the assurance that God has an overriding beneficial purpose for it. We should make sure that our faith is placed in Jesus Christ in order to claim the promises Peter has outlined for us here today. Call upon him today and he will give you the gift of eternal life. If you are suffering in some way today, I encourage you, ask the Lord for the reason. Ask him. If you don't know, ask. If you are suffering because of your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, congratulations. You're doing what he's called you to do. And you can be rest assured that God is with you and in a unique way. Keep standing for him. And use your suffering as a time for rejoicing. Many years ago in Dublin, Ireland, a group of Christian women met regularly to study the Bible. And they were puzzled by the meaning of Malachi 3.3, which states, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. They decided to visit a silversmith and learn what they could about the refining process. After he explained the process to them, one lady said, But sir, do you sit and watch while the refining is going on? He replied, Oh yes, indeed. I must sit with my eyes fixed on the surface of that silver. For if the time necessary for refining is exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver is sure to be damaged. And then he also added, 
I only know when the process is complete by seeing my own image on the silver. This is what the Lord wants to see in all of us. As he refines us, bringing us through those fiery trials. What do you think? Is this you this morning? Are you going through a fiery trial? Do you not not understand why? Consider it a blessing. Consider it an opportunity for God to refine you in a way that is pleasing in his eyes. Refine you in a way that he can use you for the best possible reason. For the reason we don't even know now. But for what God will present later. I pray if that is you this morning that you will Continue to ask God, what is my purpose? How do I survive my suffering? How do I rejoice in my suffering? That's what God is calling us to do this morning. Dave, come and give a benediction, please. In our sufferings and trials and things that we're facing, may we agree to be able to say this together or sing this together as we go. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in. Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we recognize that through our trials, you are being glorified, that you are refining us in a way that will be useful for your kingdom. Thank you for our opportunity to be here this morning. Bless all those who could not be here for whatever reason, Lord. And I pray as we move forward, as we grow in our relationship to you that you will be revealed in our lives so that others may come to know you as well. Thank you again for our time and we love you so much, Lord. And it is in your name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.